Welcome to the podcast World of Swedish History. My name is Johan Romin and I'm a Swedish journalist based in Stockholm with a great interest in history. This podcast is about Swedish and Nordic history and it's all told in English. Welcome to the World of Swedish History. When I started this podcast and knew from the start I wanted to have one episode about the Vasa ship the great war vessel which sunk during her maiden voyage right in the middle of Stockholm on August 10, 1628. The ship then spent 333 years in the water before it was lifted up and put in a museum in 1961. It is the world's best preserved ship from that time period and since it was the king's ship it was impressive and highly decorated, of course a gold mine for all the historians. I made a visit to the Vasa Museum on Djurgården in Stockholm, but before we meet the historian Anna-Maria Forsberg, I will tell you the size of this ship so you just get the picture how big it is. It is 69 meters long and that is 226 feet. It is almost 12 meters wide, 38 feet. And the height is more than 52 meters, 172 feet. And this ship had a total of 64 cannons on two cannon decks. Now I'm here at the Vasa Museum and this boat here is massive. Can you present yourself? Yes, my name is Anna-Maria Forsberg. I work here at the Vasa Museum as a researcher and I'm a historian specialized in the 17th century. And uh, you have been on board on the ship? Yes, I have. I started working here only recently and one of the first weeks here I had the possibility and the great privilege on getting on board together with our research leader Fred Hocker who introduced me to everything about the ship and that was absolutely amazing. How does it feel to walk on this magnificent ship? First of all, for me as a 17th century historian, even though I encounter people in the source material in the archives where I usually work, I never get that close to feeling the history itself. But stepping on board on the Vasa, you can actually picture yourself back in the beginning of the 17th century, being perhaps a a boatsman, uh, a boy perhaps working, or a child saying hi to your dad who is going on this ship's maiden voyage. You can feel the smell still of the ship. And you actually, or I felt that it was kind of high and unstable even sitting here in the museum. So you can only imagine how it felt like out on the waves because it's such a tall ship and you really get that impression when you step on it, you feel the height of it. But is it risky to walk uh, inside the ship or something like yes, that? You have to you have to mind your step a little bit. You can't step everywhere because it has been, of course, repaired. There are old uh, the the ship still to ninety five percent is or in original. There are some new planks added so you can step safely. But of course, you have to be careful also not to destroy anything of the ship that is so precious to all of us. Yeah. And I have been here maybe, I don't know, maybe 50 times since, <laughs> since I was a kid. And I'm, is always, I get chills on my body when I see this ship. It's so huge. It is. And still, if you go below deck, you realize that they were cramped. Because 450 people were supposed to work here side by side. And there is very little space. So even though it's a very big ship for the people working there, there it must have been like a feeling of being 
crowded, not having any space to yourself, being surrounded by people all the time, day and night, the smells of other people, the, a lot of people not feeling well probably uh, being in this era. So you can imagine that it was not so nice. And also it must have been very humid and not in a very nice sense. I mean, the, the ship was constructed, they counted on water coming in, so there were ways for it to get out again. But being out in a ship like this, say in the fall, when it's cold and it's water everywhere, must have been quite horrible, actually. And it, it was built in the beginning of the 1600s. And the 1600s is, is a remarkable century for Sweden. It started off Sweden being very, very poor and almost squeezed into this part of the world. And in the end of the century, we were one of the great powers of Europe. Can you walk through me a little bit on the 1600s of Swedish yes, history? Absolutely. So this Vasa is part of what is often referred to as Sweden's age of greatness. Of course, that could be put into question, but we'll, we'll just stay with that for a while. And, and usually we see that when the king Gustavus Adolphus, he takes over the power when his father dies in 1611. And that is often seen as a starting point. Already back in the 16th century, his grandfather had started to consolidate Sweden to make it a realm to start tax collecting, to change the religion from Catholicism to Protestantism, to organize all the realm in a better sense. So the, modern, the modernization of Sweden was already on its way. or It had started, but it really took off with Gustav Adolf and his advisor, Chancellor Axel Oxenstierna. They built the army, they built the navy, they built the, the royal administration, and they brought all of this up to a new level. Uh, and all this was, to a large extent, dictated by their will to participate in the 17th century war competition. Because the 17th century, not only for Sweden, but for all of Europe, is an extremely uh, extremely uh, war-filled period uh, and the wars involved pretty much everyone and it was really a live-or-die competition so some of the countries succeeded in, the, in this uh, competition and some didn't and they they vanished basically yeah and this ship that we see here why was it built it was built it was ready to to be going to the war in 1628, but it started a little bit earlier than that. Sweden had had some bad experiences from not having a good navy in the, uh, in the beginning of the realm of Gustav Adolf. In the war with Denmark, the Kalmar War, which was a disaster for Sweden, the navy didn't, uh, didn't measure up. It didn't, was not sufficient. So that was one of the first things that he and Oxenstierna started to do, was to build up the navy again. And this became even more crucial since in the 1620s, several of the ships had accidents and were destroyed in different ways. And this is also something to remember about the fleet or the ships in the 17th century, that even though most of them do not have a spectacular story as Vasa, that it would sink in the middle of Stockholm, a lot of them had accidents. So anyway, they needed ships because Sweden was at war with Poland and Lithuania. Uh, Gustav Adolf was competing with his cousin Sigismund, who had a claim and a rightful claim to the Swedish throne. He was the son of Johan III. Yes. And uh, he was uh, taken away from, from the Swedish power. Yes, exactly, because the father, Gustav Adolf, had taken power uh, from the rightful king. Mm. Uh, that would have been Sigismund. 
So this was a, a dynastic quest, as we well know from Game of Thrones and other things that people like to watch today. But this was also, of course, a quest of power and territory that was going on in the Baltic at this particular time. And the war with Poland was actually going towards its end. Sweden had, its, had the upper hand, had taken Riga in 1621 and was slowly gaining. And that year after Vasa in 1629, there was actually a truce with Poland. But in 1618, what we call the Thirty Years' War had begun and the king had set his mind on joining that war. So he knew that he needed warships, not only for the war with Poland, but also for joining the Thirty Years' War. And that is why Vasa was built. So this was his crown ship? It was the most impressive ship that had been built. It was the most important ship of the Swedish Navy. It was the, the, a regal ship, a crown ship that the king could have been on himself. And it was also had more firepower than any other sailing ship at the time. And the reason why we can stand here looking at this ship was because it sunk in yes. August 1628. And why that was is, that? I like to think back to that day because I think Vasa was the ship of Stockholm. For the people in Stockholm, a lot of them had a relationship to this ship because it had been built in Stockholm at what is today called Blasiaholmen. Uh, so people standing around watching because people had gathered to see this event. It was a big event that it was sailing away. So a lot of the people watching probably knew someone who had built or soon or who was going to travel with it. So they had a relationship to it. They were there hailing, saying hooray, listening to the salute from the ship. A Sunday morning, right? Yes, and it was a, an August morning, the 10th of August. It was a br bright skies, not much wind. Probably a nice day for people to be out. And then came first a gust of wind and tipped the boat a little bit. And some people probably got a little bit scared already by that stage, but it, it came back again uh, to be straight. But then came a bigger gust of wind and the cannon ports were open because of the saluting going on. So it took in water and immediately started leaning really badly to the side. Uh, the captain realized that there was a problem ordered that the cannon ports be shot, but it was already too late. And it sank extremely quickly, really, really fast, because it, it took in water and also the bar last. Uh, the stones around. in the, in the yeah. lower part of the ship. Yes. It started to what? It also caved to the, to the one side. Okay. So it, it very, 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 very fast leaned to the, uh, to the one side and took in water and, and got filled up with water very fast. And how many people died in this catastrophe? This is actually a little bit surprising because only 30 people, about 30 people died out of the 150 that were on the ship at this time. So it was not fully manned with uh, all the 450 no, people? There. because this was the first journey and the idea was for the ship to go first to Vaxholm and the boatsmen could bring their wives and kids with them if they wanted to. It was like a fun excursion and picnic. And from Vaxholm it was supposed to go to Elvesnabben to pick all the soldiers up. All right. So the soldiers were not there yet. It was only the seamen and their families. Uh, the thing is, we don't know so much about them. We don't have any lists. We know who were in charge, but for the rest of the people, they are anonymous to us still to this day. Oh, oh really? So 
the big question here is why did it sink? Was it a bad ship or was it a bad sailor ship, so to speak? Was it a bad captain? I can, I can show you when we stand in another part of the museum because I think it's almost visible to the eye that if you look at the ship, you see how incredibly tall it is above the water. And it was heavy above the water. Even though they knew when they constructed it that they needed to lay the weight low down and they tried to make the construction so it was lighter and lighter the higher, uh, the higher up in the, in the construction you get, still it was too much weight too high up. Okay. So it was not stable enough. Okay. And that could not have been solved by adding more stones because then it would have been too deep in the water and the cannon ports would have been too close to the waterline. Okay, so then it was badly built, this ship? Yes, it was uh, a construction error, you could say. Yeah. It was too, too tall. And how that uh, the, the people that uh, were, were responsible for building the ship, that they blamed each other, oh, this is the guy, this is the one to blame. Absolutely, because what happened after the ship sank was of course at the Royal Council that were in Stockholm, uh, the king himself was in Poland, so they naturally were really, really nervous and afraid, like, what are we going to say now to the king? So they wrote to him and told him, okay, there's been an accident, and they immediately started an investigation to see who was guilty. And the king must have been really angry about this. For sure, for sure. It does not, I mean, the tone in his letters is not uh, happy, but it's not raging either. But what he said to people in person, we can only imagine. So there was an investigation, who was to blame? The thing was that the shipbuilder, he was dead. The shipyard had been taken over by his widow, uh, but she had not been on the project when the, the main things had been done. There was also her associate, but he said that, listen, all these plans were, have been uh, okayed by the king. So in the investigation, things started to point a little bit towards the king being responsible for not stopping the project. And in the end, no one was sentenced. And all of them, basically, except the shipwright uh, owner, Margareta Nilsdotter, except for her, all of them had good careers afterwards. Is this the height of the ship or was it even higher? Uh, you only see one third of the masts. One third? Oh, that's huge. <laughs> oh, really? And now we're standing at the back of the ship. Yes. And you're an expert on the 17th century propaganda. Yes. And if we look at this, what would you say? This is propaganda, right? Yes, this is, of course, my favorite part of the ship. So we're standing looking at the stern, at the stern castle at the top of the ship. And as I said before, it's extremely high and it's on the stern, there is a very uh, eloquent iconography that actually tells you a lot of information if you know how to read it. And we look, for the furthest up we can come, we see the young prince, Gustav Adolf, being crowned by two griffins, and the griffins represent his father, Charles IX, who was uh, the Count of Södermanland, so that's where they come from. Beneath, and that is actually what I find almost most fascinating with all of the stern, are 11 small figures. And the young prince, or the young king, he's holding his hands over those small uh, figurines or people as he is protecting them, but also he takes support from them, as you can see. And they are the people. Okay, how come there are 11? And that is 
very, very strange. And I've been thinking a lot about that because it doesn't make sense. You would expect them to be eight, perhaps, because in Sweden we have a diet with four estates, the nobles, the burghers, the peasantry uh, and the priests. Uh, or you could expect them to be three, perhaps. Uh, I mean, you, you could expect all sorts of, of uh, ways of showing the Swedish people. And this is completely unexpected to me because the, these 11 figures, uh, uh, a researcher has uh, made a lot of work on them and things that furthest out, so th they are like doubles. So furthest out on both sides is a peasant woman. Then comes a soldier, then comes a burger woman, then comes a priest, then comes a noble woman, and in the middle, it's some important person, we don't know who, but my guess is that it's Axel Luxenstierna because he has a beard mm -hmm. uh, and he has the field uh, bindel. He has the, some kind of military insignia that you can see on portraits of him. Okay. But all this, I mean, this is an interpretation. We don't know mm. because there is no written manual of the Vasa. Mm. All the sculptures are open to interpretation, which is both some, at some points frustrating but also very fascinating. So we really have to use our minds to see what does this all mean. And for me, as a 17th-century historian who has been working a lot on propaganda and a lot on the people and the legitimacy of the royal crown, I was amazed to see the Swedish people represented by six women and five men. Yeah, that's interesting. Very uh, Because that is very rare. Of course, there were as many women as men in the 17th century, but in the sources, the women are almost always left out. Yeah. But here they are on the Vasa in a very important spot. Now tell me about these lions here. Why lions? In Sweden, we don't have any lions here. The lion has been a popular symbol for Sweden for a long time, but not only for Sweden actually. I mean, a lot of countries have used the lion as a national symbol. Uh, in the Swedish coat of arms, uh, there are lions since the Middle Ages, basically. Now we are at the highest point in the museum, right? Where you can look down on the ship. So we're looking down at the stern and the fantastic sculptures. Yeah. The sculptures that send a very clear message to uh, the viewer that Gustav, Gustavus Adolphus is the legitimate and rightful king of Sweden, that he has God on his side, and that his family is old and important. Yeah. You could uh, question if he was the legitimate king since his father, so to speak, stole the crown. Absolutely, and that is why this is so important for the king to show off yeah. that he has the right to the throne and to the crown. So we see the young king being crowned. We see him both protecting and taking support from the people. Beneath that is the Swedish coat of arms. Mm. Then comes uh, Gideon and his knights from the Old Testament. Uh, then comes the Vasa coat of arms. Uh, and the, surrounding the Vasa coat of arms are six knights. There are only five now, one is missing. But there were six from the beginning. In, they look a little bit medieval in uh, armor. And it has been discussed whether they are to represent the Goths. Mm -hmm. Because at this point in history, 
all all royal families in Europe basically wanted to claim that they were ancestors to the Romans and they were very important and so on. And in Sweden this was made by saying that the Swedish götar were really goter and had once defeated the Roman warriors. And below that is David standing on the head of Goliath. David from the Bible. Mm. So, and on... And what is important here is that so there is a, a story going from the top, from the bottom, where Gustav Adolf is uh, showing off the national coat of arms, the Vasa coat of arms, being compared to Gideon, the, the hero in the biblical in, in the Old Testament, who with very, very, very few men defeated the enemy because he had the support of God. And David, who is the same, who who even though he was the weaker part, defeated Goliath and then became the known and wise king. Uh, so this is, in a sense, a comparison, and it puts Gustav Adolf with these biblical heroes. How come that Gustavus Adolphus was portrayed as a baby or a small boy, a toddler? He was a grown man when this. Yes, was... absolutely. And this scene, uh, this is something that I'm investigating right now because okay. there are no true answers. Mm. We don't know exactly what, it's, what it is. It could be 1604 when it was decided that the young prince Gustav Adolf would take over the throne after his father. It could be in 1607 when his father was crowned and he was also present. It could be in 1611 when his father dies and he gets to inherit the, cro- the crown and he's only at this point 16 years old. And uh, now today, all of this is uh, have a brownish color, but in the 1600s, it was bright colors and red yes, and br- everything. Absolutely. Tell me a little and bit. There has been so it's been a research project going on in the Basia Museum long before I started here. That is extremely interesting because all the sculptures were really, really colorful. Uh, when they were taken up, you could still see color on some of them. But after preservation, it's very hard to see. And you can actually see the gold still on the lions when you're... Yeah, you, I, can, I can see it now a little yeah. bit. And, and their tongues are red, and you can see a little bit of the red if you stick your head in there. Oh, okay. <laughs> but normally you don't. And then we rely on research. And Peter Tongebayu has taken hundreds of samples from the sculptures and working with scientific methods to try to figure out how they were painted and come up with replicas that you can see around the museum. And they were really colorful and bright, all of them. And the ship was also, the, some of the stern and the stern castle was painted in red. Mm-hmm. And the lions were, of course, in gold and yellow. Uh, the big lion that we have in, on the beak head was also in gold and yellow. So this was very, very, a very impressive sight. Mm. Very colorful, very vivid. But uh, today, uh, uh, warships are grey. They don't, they don't want to be seen. <laughs> but in the, how come that uh, everything was so bright in, in the colour? The, the idea of camouflage is quite recent, both in, in uh, the marine and both in the navy and the army. And in this day, it was not about at all about hiding yourself, but rather to present yourself and to impress and scare your opponent. And this, of course, as we said before, was also a means of propaganda and to show off how wealthy and important and powerful the Vasa family was. Mm. 
now we're at the front of the ship. And can you, what can you tell me? What do we see here? So we are looking at the beak with a, a big mast going out where you could actually set a sail. And we see the big lion that is on the front of the ship. A very, very big, impressive lion. How many meters could it be? Like four meters? Or yeah, we could measure because we have a replica just here. But yes, I agree. Yeah. So something like four meters. Yeah. Uh, behind him are Roman emperors. And that also, of course, is to compare the king with the royal emperors. And one of the royal emperors is missing, and that is Augustus, because the king wanted to compare himself to Augustus. So the lion symbolizes Augustus, Gustav Adolf, all in one. Okay. Like the just uh, and perfect emperor. Here you can see something much more familiar also, and that is the loo. Two of them, and they look like uh, almost like dustbins or something. Do you see them? That they little are a square thing, yes, like a box. Exactly, exactly. Okay. There would be also a lid on it that you would find on a like an outdoor lavatory today. Should uh, everybody, everyone on the ship go to that one? Uh, there are two, yeah, uh, and that was probably not enough. So probably the officers had perhaps ways to do it in, in the closed part of the ships that they had access to. And some of the men would probably just climb over the rails to do hang out what from they the had ship to do. and do yeah. what they had to do. Mm. Uh, and sitting on the loo, you could see one of the most bizarre sculptures of the Vasa. That is a bearded man sitting under what looks like a table or in a cage. And I will show you right here. Okay. And this sculpture can only be seen from the inside, not from the... When we are standing here, we can't see it from the outside. It's hidden under there. Okay. And this is believed to be a portrait of a Pole, since Sweden and Poland were in war, because it was a Polish tradition for noblemen that if they had made something that the others did not approve of, they were forced to get under a table and bark like a dog. <laughs> and that... you. That one you saw when you went to the toilet? Yes, exactly. Okay. So sitting on the toilet, you could see the Polish enemy barking like a dog. Okay. Going out here must have been kind of adventurous. I've, I've done it today in the museum and it kind of scared me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was not even at sea. No. Uh, and that is really one of the things that I think about the most about the ship, how it was to be a seaman on board. and. Some of them, and, and, and then especially the soldiers, because some of them probably had never been to sea at all before. Mm. And if you wanted to go uh, to the very front up there on that mast, yes. you had to climb all the way up there. Yes. It must be very, very dangerous to do that. I think so too. According to my colleague Fred Hocker, who has also been sailing with the Kalmar Nickel, that is a replica of a ship that is also a 17th century ship, it's not that hard. But in my eyes, I think it, it seems kind of terrifying to me. I, perhaps, I don't know if you have time, you would like to meet some of the skeletons from the Vasa? The skeletons? Yes. Oh, really? You have those here? I, yeah. we, we do. I can't wait. And so many uh, young guys uh, died in wars in, in the 17th century. It's been calculated that during the whole period of the, the Sweden age of, age of greatness, you say that half a million Swedish men died, oh. which is a lot. Of yeah, course. and then how many people in total of Sweden? Uh, one and a half million, yeah. perhaps. Uh, 
but that is during the whole of this period. Mm. But for instance, in the 1620s, I think at about 30,000 Swedish soldiers died in the Polish war, and very fast. Mm. So uh, I'm not saying that, it, I mean, the impact on society was great. Sweden has been called the, the, the land of the widows in the 17th century. Mm. Everyone, of course, know, knew someone or, or several people who had gone to war and never came back. And this goes also for everyone, not only the peasants that delivered most of the soldiers, but also if you see noble families, they have like several sons dead in war often, even really the top nobility. And, and if you lived in a city, then you could be conscripted as a boatsman and go to the sea and die, of mm, course. Mm. So this very much impacted all of society. And if you were uh, taken out as a soldier, you, this was not a voluntary choice. Uh, you had to. Mm. Uh, so if you were chosen as a soldier, you had a very, very slender chance to get back. You say that perhaps 10% would come back if they were sent out to war. Mm. So that was almost like a death sentence. Mm. And as a consequence, of course, people tried to escape or even mutilate themselves not to go. But yet, for some people, it was also an opportunity. They had a very, very poor situation. They had perhaps no prospect of, of uh, inheriting a farm or, or anything like that. They were living on the margins of society. And in the military, some of them actually managed to survive and to to get a better life and, and, and a higher social status. Mm. So it was a lottery. And some of the dead from the sinking of Vasa is here. Yes, we have about, we have 15 uh, skeletons that we, uh, and that we have puzzled together to be people and we have also some more bones, probably perhaps from other people. But the interesting thing about the skeletons is that of course they say things about the people that were on Vasa that day. Uh, two of them were women, or maybe even three. Uh, one of them uh, that we call Helge, we don't know their names, but one of them that we call Helge, he was actually stuck under a cannon, uh, so he couldn't get out. Oh, really? And uh, he was probably one of the, per of the people who died first. Here is Helge that I spoke about. He's really, really badly uh, hurt. Yeah, there's uh, just some parts, under, skeleton parts here. Uh, but his brain was intact when they found him. Oh, really? And Where is that brain then? In our magazine. Okay. So it's still, it's preserved. Maybe in the future they could bring out his thoughts <laughs> yes. in a science fiction <laughs> yes. world. Yes, that would be something. Then, but then we would be useless. Yeah. <laughs> they would fire all historians yeah. <laughs> immediately, so let's not hope for that. So finally, what's the best thing uh, working uh, at the Vasa ship museum? There are so many good things about it, but I think the best thing is every time I step out, step into the museum and see the ship, I get blown away. It doesn't matter how many times I see it, it still blows my mind to see this ship from the 17th century to feel how it was and it's really a time travel that I get to experience every day. Okay, thank you very much for having me here. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the podcast World of Swedish History. Because of a book project that I have just started, I will from now on try to get one episode out every other week. Make sure to become a member of our Facebook group World of Swedish History. There you can read more posts more frequently. All the best for now. Bye.